0: Hello, and welcome to Workall's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted to be joined on this edition of the Work All Happiness uh, podcast to be talking to uh, Ross and Hugo Turner. Now you may well know Ross and Hugo by a different name. Uh, They're called the Turner Twins and they are pioneering British adventurers they've done the most amazing things. They've walked on ice caps, they've climbed mountains, they've rode the Atlantic. And what's so different about them, as you're about to discover, is not only do they do those extraordinary things, but they do it in aid of medical and scientific research. They look at old kit and new kit, and they look at a whole host of things around, well, I won't spoil it anymore. Instead, I'm going to talk to both of them, and they'll tell you all about what they do and the amazing life they're both living. So Hugo and Ross, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, hello, welcome. Thank you so much for having us.
0: Well, it's a complete pleasure. Now, I know that you're identical twins and my wife uh, is a twin. And also uh, in our PR team, we have two twins. And so the first question I want to ask is, how are you both different?
2: <laughs> well, from where you are, it's probably very difficult to tell. Um, I have a gap in my teeth, so I, I'm Hugo, uh, younger by eight minutes. Um, yeah, I have a gap in my teeth, a slightly rounder face. Um, I mean, we could—is—is I, is, is this uh, podcast mark got an R rating? Because I don't know how far we want to go with different, you know, stories and things like that, but. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, were there any
0: noticeable differences when you uh, spoke to us just a minute ago? Well, no, you looked incredibly similar. And I know that the reason I'm asking you this is that a lot of the work that you've done in your expeditions and adventures is about the fact that you are identical twins. And so what I'm keen to know, obviously physically you look the same, but are you the same mentally? Do you have the same approach on life? Is one of you more gregarious? Or is one of you more academic? I mean how 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 are you both different to each other mm, that's, a, that's that's or, a I'll go, I'll t- go first.
1: I'll, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll have a stab at this question
0: it's a it's a very
1: weird um feeling when somebody asks you such um personal and totally acceptable by the way questions about twins because we don't we really um get a lot of people asking such um such questions so it's really thought-provoking um I definitely say um you know, is it nature versus nurture? I think we've we've had very, very similar upbringings until we were about 15, 16, 17. So we did exactly the same um, through education, through school classes, etc. Parents used to buy one, get one free. So we were very, very identical in that way. Um, and then Hugo broke his neck at age 17. And that was really when we started physically and mentally um, separating. Um, a little bit from each other's personas um, so rather than one copying the other um, we did find our identity slowly um, so Hugo uh, broke his neck in a freak diving accident down in Cornwall um, after lower sixth exams um, and ended up very luckily walking out of the water um, but having a full neck reconstruction and um, experiencing hospital appointments and in and out of the next six months, um, and I was I was left to work down in Cornwall um, for the first time. I was left without the twin for weeks and weeks on end. Um, so that that did change me. Um, I wouldn't be able to tell you how it changed me, but it it did. Um, and obviously Hugo um, had to stop playing sport at any sort of level for a number of years.
2: I was going to say seventeen is like a reasonable age to retire now, isn't it? When you're a sports person, he seems to be getting younger and younger, but. You know, on on that note, you know, we both went off um, to university, but sport was such a big part of, um, you know, growing up for us. You know, we were fortunate enough to grow up on Dartmoor. So, you know, we had uh, the wilds of the Moorland and, uh, you know, we had each other, fortunately. And I think, you know, that was a huge part of our life. You know, we've got an older brother and sister, but they're two years apart respectively. And, you know, they're not particularly close. um, And... You know it's just we had each other for entertainment you know we didn't grow up with social media we barely had computer you know i think we, dad got first computer maybe when we were about 10 11 at the house tv wasn't something that you know you had on 24 hours a day or certainly didn't broadcast 24 hours a day with you know a billion channels of all different very you know, on demand it was just that good old terrestrial one two three and channel four Um, And that was it. So, you know, adventure, it was like a really organic upbringing, which, you know, has probably, you know, cemented the foundations of what we're doing today.
0: And then and then when you grew up together at at home in those early years and at school, I mean, were you inseparable?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Ross says that we weren't. I mean, we did everything together. We played sports. So in terms, you know, your earlier question, you know, how, how similar are we? Yeah, I would say we're absolutely identical, um, bar a few physical uh, physical differences. But, you know, sport, we played, you know, all sports, hockey, rugby, athletics, cricket, all that. So we did it all together and we're in the same sports teams. We then moved on to, um, you know, national athletics together, same, same discipline, decathlon. But then individually, Ross would do javelin because he's got an, uh, a... I want to say a very offensive arm it's it just throws a javelin and a cricket ball absolutely miles so he was good at that and weirdly i could do the discus quite well so you know we've done different sports but within the same kind of remit and yeah it's um it's guided us
1: definitely onto the same path where we live on dartmoor is so i say so remote it's not kind of proper proper remoteness Um, that you would associate with kind of a classic looking dartmoor we were accessible but we had no neighbors um so we just got on playing in the fields and in the woods with each of us so but you um, don't
2: you don't miss what you don't have and you know mum's you know (laughs) let's just say she's aging and she's got my old iphone just so she can be connected on whatsapp but um, other than that, you know, she's never missed technology because she's never had it. And you know, we, like children today, I, I'm really fearful that they're going to miss that, you know, that curious glance out the window and go, oh, what's out there? Because everything now is just on their tablets, on their phones. Mm. You know, you've got five-year-olds, maybe this is an ex- exaggeration, but, you know, we've got a four-year-old niece who knows how to work an iPhone inside out, back to front, and you know would she know how to you know light a fire or set a picture tent probably not and actually that's the first time i've actually ever said that and thought of that that's quite a weird Mm. thought you know times have changed
0: and and when you when you went to school uh, academically did you kind of follow the same route do you like the same subjects
1: yeah i we definitely enjoyed the same subjects and followed each other in a very similar pattern um through our youthful schooling and then into obviously more mature schooling um yeah there's, there were ebbs and flows where one of us was in um a, a slightly different class um but i think that's that's natural you're going to ebb and flow between answering um questions and answering different teachers um responses yeah, I thought-
2: but I, you know, we we were kind of middle middle to bottom, Mark. You know, we weren't we're not <laughs> scholars by any means, but um, you know, middle ground. Um, but you know, you you find that theme, don't you? Where you know, kids at school who excess, I know, um, excel academically, go on to do amazing things post school life, and people that, you know, the way the school system works is that if you're sporty you know it's regarded as something that's a bit more you know favorable but you know I wish I don't know I wish I think
1: I think we um we retracted it or detracted from each other's progress at school I and I and I say that with with uh, the kindest of hearts hug say biology and you were slightly more passionate and engaged in it and I didn't know the answers I'd more than likely just sponge off you and listen to you if I was better at physics and you weren't we would probably do the same reciprocated. And I think we didn't really have our own direct thought of thinking, it was more, right, the, the twin will take up the slack Yeah, there.
2: Ross, you've got it absolutely right there. I think we both, you know, we're half, <laughs> we're half a brain each, but, you know, we do think that, you know, where the other is better, that person fills in.
0: And when you, you look back to those days, you were talking about Dartmoor and exploring. where where did you get that sort of bug from was it was it your parents was it your teachers was it something you saw on the tv I
2: I I really don't know Mark I I mean it was something that was always there um you know we always joke about and not that we remember it but we apparently mum mum kept us in the garden with barbed wire and electric fence because we were always escaping when we were I think probably toddlers it's got to be said um but no no joke and I think lots of people gasp but you know, we were absolutely wild. Um, my mum had four children and, you know, we were always out. There was a local mine at the bottom of, um, across the fields that we used to constantly go and spend all hours of all days just exploring and, you know, f- working out what was what and explore, exploring the pits and drink. Oh, I remember one time we drank some, I don't know what it was, but it made us unbelievably ill for, for a few days, but... You know, there's always been that, you know, desire to go beyond the hedge. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, I, think beyond. I don't know what that is. And I was just you um, watching David Attenborough and watching the Christmas Island crabs and how they're so young, yet they still know what to do. And I can't explain it, but it was just, you know, curiosity and exploring is something that's just been instilled in us maybe through process of growing up somewhere um that allowed us to do it or whether it's just you know our nature and just the fact that we are what we are and we think the way we think and act I think I think it I think it was
1: ambition hug wasn't it when you're when you're that young you don't have any concept to anything you know you can go down to the bottom of the field and discover what's there and then you look past the hedge and you slowly build up your ambition and your your limitations around where you can and cannot go and feel comfortable and for us on Dartmoor we were, we were very young we started off with a, a lovely field at the back of the house and then we went past into the woods and then into a local quarry and then onto the fringes of the wild of Dartmoor and we've slowly
2: slowly built up over many years that, um, I do, I, that I do wild. Think- I do think, though, that, you know, there's a bit of, you know, I think we're all born explorers, you know, for the fact that we've probably tried more than one flavour of chocolate bar, the fact that we try different foods, the fact that we go to different places means that we're curious and, you know, we want to discover something new. Um, so whether, you know, you look at us you know, visiting places that are further afield or you look at somebody that goes to you know Mediterranean for a summer holiday you're both you know itching that scratch and trying to experience something new, find something new and so you know, there's, I, I, you know there's not a huge amount of difference between what we do and what somebody else does it just means that we just have a pretty uncomfortable holiday.
0: <laughs> and, and, um, and Hugo, I mean Ross has touched on it about your accident, and we'll talk to you a little more about it in a moment or two. But but prior to that, had the two of you thought about what you were going to do by way of work in your adult life? Had you talked about being explorers, or had you decided no. you wanted to work in a bank, or had, had you got any thoughts about your life when you were both sixteen years old? Yeah, we
1: we both um, well, I think we went to a, um, a family I think week- we both weekend.
2: Ross, we probably wanted to be um, professional sportsmen, didn't we?
1: Yeah, yeah, there was, de- was definitely, um, we, we were very good at um, a lot of sports, rugby and athletics being two of the kind of highlights. Um, and then we realised we were probably a little bit behind um, most of the, the national players and um, athletes. So we looked at, I remember we went to a Limston weekend or a family fund day at Limston where the Royal Marines are based. Uh, down in South Devon, and we, yeah, I think we considered it, but at the end of the day, um, the military is there. You know, you train to kill, and that really wasn't uh, the baseline we wanted to progress our careers on. So we then finished uh, school and headed to university, not really knowing where, where we were ending up and what we were wanting to do.
2: I mean, so I still, I still remember the advice my or our sister gave us when we were deciding on whether we were what we were going to study at uni and she and our older brother both have both gone to university um and they said don't go to university I couldn't tell you why but they just said go and do something vocational go and do an apprenticeship go and do something hands-on because you know we were very practical growing up we loved making things you know we built built a (laughs) we built a sledge one Christmas and used every single nail in the garage and I remember dad being very annoyed but you know because we had each other and because we just had you know dad had a shed and we just we were just boys and we just built stuff and we just did stupid things and you know that practical skill you know helps us on our expeditions but you know they did say don't go to uni I I did like uni but you know as um, you you probably hear, you know, I had a, a spinal injury and um, albeit I went to uni, I couldn't really pursue sport. And yeah, I, I think ultimately if I could do it again, um, I would be a professional sportsman. But um, yeah, I've got a few few friends that are professional sportsmen, but they're, you know, they're our age, 30s now, early 30s. And they're looking at the end of their career. And there's, for some, it's a very difficult, you know, decision making process to go through in the coming year.
0: And, and and you you mentioned uh, Hugo the accident. So so just tell us a little about uh, what happened when you were diving, and then really how that changed your plans.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, there's various stories that I twist, but the reality is, I was um, yeah just um, having a break at the end of uh, end of the day uh, on on the beach um, in North Cornwall. And, tide was right up. I was running in from the beach. So I wasn't tombstoning. Um, that's quite popular, um, stupid thing for children to do, but where they jump from the rocks. So I was doing a Baywatch and running in from the, uh, the beach uh, and then dived, dived head first at about knee, knee level and just got it completely wrong. Went straight into the sand um, on the top of my head. So it just crushed my neck. Fortunately, um I wasn't knocked out I wasn't paralyzed but my neck was you know spasming so to speak all tensed up walked out and I think the first thing Rossi you said was what an idiot because it's funny Mm. it's that twin thing whenever we do something stupid and we know it's really stupid and the other one's watching you'll get a bit frustrated and say oh you're an idiot and why'd you do that and it still happens on trips it's hilarious but yeah I do remember Ross saying you know (laughs) you plonker um and yeah long story short um you know, uh we thought it was a slip disc. You know, I've played rugby, broken many bones, but didn't think it was a broken neck. Um, thought it was just a slip disc. Yeah. Uh, walked back along the cliffs to the car park, got in a car to then go and find a friend's father who's a doctor. They weren't in, and then we decided to call the an ambulance about an hour later or so. But because I was in the car, they had to then cut me out. Oh,
1: <laughs> so
2: no. so uh yeah, I think I went out the back eventually, um, and then that was about eight o'clock in the evening, and then the wee hours of the next morning. Um, yeah, the doctor came in and said you've got a broken neck, um, and I was seventeen, and I've got to be honest, I didn't really know the severity of the um, of the the injury, um, but you know the surgeon called home at about three four in the morning, and dad when he was my age playing for England, rugby broke his neck and ended his career. So that was, so he knew exactly what was going on. I didn't particularly um, appreciate the danger or how close I'd been. So anyway, fast forward eight weeks, um, being at home in hospital, um, went for a checkup scan and then uh, the bone was unstable and moving around and had to have an operation. So um, yeah, neck reconstruction, a callpectomy is the procedure and yeah c7 but annoyingly it doesn't set any airport alarms off which i thought would be like a nice little you know the surgeon laughing at me every time i went traveling but no but yeah you know um mark unbelievably lucky to be walking unbelievably lucky to do what we do to support some amazing charities um and yeah you know use it as a proper inspiration and a springboard to do what we do
0: so, te- so tell us then, because this is obviously a seminal moment for both of you, you know, you're know, you thinking about being a, a, a sportsman, clearly that's ruled out, you're just about to go off to university. So, so how, how does this change the thinking for the two of you? Um,
1: it changed the dynamic hugely, I think. Um, even if we were very unaware about, of it at the time, looking back in hindsight, it's a wonderful thing, it did. It did change us, and I think it put us on the path that we're on now. If we had both, or if Hug hadn't had his injury, we would have we would have both gone to university. Um, we would have probably both carried on doing as much sport as we could. I played um, first first fifteen rugby at Loughborough University. Hug was obviously my cheerleader, and. <laughs> Uh, And we we always realised from the age of 17, after his accident, that we wanted to to play sport together. Um, And that obviously was not possible. Um, Hugo did a little bit of rowing because he couldn't obviously do any impact sport. Um, And then I broke my leg quite badly um, playing rugby towards the end of my university career. And that injury kind of brought us full circle again. Hug had had his injury that stopped him playing sport. I had my broken leg and had to stop playing rugby. And so we, we graduated, it was the year before graduation. Um, and we just thought, wow, we're in, a, we're in a recession. I think it was 2010 was the last, or just coming out of a recession, I think it was. Um, and there was no jobs going. We just thought, God, you know, what can we do to add a bit of value to our CVs when we finish university? And uh, after a couple of pints, um, a friend of ours who we actually eventually did grow with, said, why don't we row the Atlantic? And, and from then we thought, well, that's a great way of adding something to our CV. But also putting us back together in a sporting environment, which we hadn't done for four or five years. So, um, we yeah, you've got to make um, every de- every decision. Um, every decision has a silver lining, and for us, even though Hugo had broken his neck, um, the silver lining was we went on to uh, do bigger, bigger, and better things and dream big.
0: So, so the the, the extraordinary part of your your story now. <laughs> Uh, begins to unfold that instead of doing as most graduates do and go on the milk round and apply for jobs wherever the two of you decide with a friend to row across the Atlantic.
2: Yeah that that's yeah. pretty much it in short I think um, <laughs> there's there's no there were there were plen- plenty of times um, midway through the Atlantic where we were like oh what are we doing um, yeah it's one of those very you know you just find yourself you fall into things and that's such a cliche thing to say but you know we just fell into it but I, I do honestly think that the the accident my injury certainly we would not be here talking to you now if that hadn't have happened um and so yeah the, the atlantic back in 2011 was our first big major expedition which was honestly a baptismal fire i cannot tell you how frightening um and horrible it was but in equal reflection one of the best things we've ever done um
0: so let's just talk about that for a second because i'll be people listening to this saying you know what i, I quite fancy a life of an adventure i'd quite like to be an explorer it can't be cheap to row across the atlantic you must need a a special boat, I'm sure you don't go down to the harbour and see a boat that's been <laughs> cast aside for 50 quid. You've got to have provisions. The two of you have had, you know, major injuries. Um, you must need a degree of, of skill and ability. Just where do you start? I mean, what, what did you, so you sat around, had a few pints and said, let's throw the Atlantic. What do you do next?
2: Well, Rossi, so, th- I'll, I'll, I'll give this. I, I think the biggest lesson we've learned is having purpose. You know, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, and to a certain extent, you know, the Atlantic was definitely a personal challenge, but its purpose was raising money for spinal research. And I think the key thing for if anyone's wanting to row the Atlantic, climb Everest, trek to the South Pole, you know, do any big expedition or personal challenge that requires a pretty hefty amount of funds, the biggest thing is to actually look at why you're doing it. You know, no one really cares about the personal challenge. That comes second. I think the key is to look at why you're doing it, whether, you know, there's a, an illness that's affected you directly, whether that, you know, what connects you to a, a philanthropic cause, what connects you to a charity, or, you know, if you had a, fr- are you fundraising for a friend, um, you know, it might be charitable, but it also might be environmental. It might be, you know, helping you know rid the oceans of plastic and so it comes down to this purpose and why you're doing it and people have just got to really look at it strategically and go is that something that a my friends are going to be interested in supporting following is it something that a brand is going to want to get involved with so they can help share their story on the back of it and it's kind of I, I dare I say entrepreneurial but you have to get really creative and look at all sides of you know the coin and ross we were yeah yeah. we
1: were we were super we were very fortunate to raise the money we did in the timeline we did um and i think as hug said it was it was the purpose social media had only really taken off in 2010 when instagram was launched facebook was becoming much much bigger um and we we ended up obviously having a, a successful campaign because we were able to get our message of um, Hugo's um, injury and wanting to help others. And I think when that message spread, we got our first big sponsor, which was um, a trust that paid for, um, or paid for the starting of the whole build. And then Investec came on board. And once we had Investec on board, everyone was like, oh, they must see someone else, you know must see um success in that project and within six months we'd raised well over 100k for the boat um back in the day obviously that was a huge amount of money but um that was because the the race as it is now was not as big it was done every other year there was only 11 boats in our in our race um and now there's so many secondhand boats that the value just drops down you could comfortably do an atlantic campaign now for under fifty thousand and sell your boat for forty thousand. so um yeah, it yeah. was, it was a lot of luck, but it was a, a lot of persevering. We, persistence, we we hammered out an unbelievable amount of emails. Even if we weren't successful, you just keep persevering. If, it, if you get a thousand pounds from somebody, fantastic. You get a hundred of those, you've got a project. Um, and it was, it was a, it, we learned a huge amount, a huge amount. We yeah, like work. don't row the Atlantic.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: so, what, so what would be your top tip for people going out, looking to find sponsors to help them on an adventure? Um, well, R- Rossi,
2: should we do one each? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you do one another. Okay, I just say perseverance, never, ever stop and take no for an answer. When something changes, the situation changes, you read something that completely changes the playing field. So, you know, you might, and what we experience a lot is changing of the guard. New CEOs, new marketing directors, new, new team members all the time going in and out of these businesses. Once that happens, you, you're straight in again. So it's just perseverance and keeping, you know, a, a close eye on your sponsors. Yeah,
1: I, I totally agree. And I'd also say, as um, so Hug said, purpose. Um, have something that's much greater than, than yourself. Something to aim for. Um, that other people can really associate with empathize with and get on board with there's no point in saying oh, I want to do the Mount Everest for myself you're just not going to get that if you're doing it for a greater cause than yourself that's um, that's a really good thing to do so
0: and, and let me take you back now then to um, to your first challenge Drone the Atlantic 2011 um, what what are your highlights from that and what did you learn from that?
1: For me I mean there's a, there's a million things we learned. Um, for me the one thing I would say is um, at the start of the project when we sat there in the pub saying right we're going to row across the Atlantic when we started putting down the costs on paper and the logistics and everything that was needed that was an unbelievable dream that was us landing on the moon um, you know raising 120 grand for a boat getting a boat built delivered out there we had to do sea trials we then had the Endless task of rowing for weeks and weeks and weeks, hoping that you'd get there, taking all the um, uncontrollables and making it successful. I mean, that was ridiculous. When we stepped off the boat in Port St. Charles in Barbados, it was that moment of, I can do anything I want if you put your mind to it, no matter how big it is. You know, the classic metaphor of how do you move a mountain? Well, it's one rock at a time. And that is so, so true. And I think that's why you find... A huge amount of people who do marathon des sables, ultra marathons, the Atlantic row. After that, it profoundly affects them, and they, they, a lot of the time, they have a big career swing or an ambition to go off and do something that they never even thought about doing. But it's that trust in themselves and faith in what they're doing that, if they break it down into small enough chunks, you can achieve whatever you want to do. It might take a longer time. And as long as you're flexible and ebb and flow with what's actively around you, um, you can get on with it. So I think, from from my point of view, the Atlantic Road just taught taught me, and I think hugs the same is you can achieve anything you want and go and live your dream.
0: And, and what about for you, Hugo? I think
2: well, it's got to be preparation. You know, I think we we gave ourselves um, a very difficult project, um, financially. You know, physiologically, mentally, logistically, you know, everything was up against us. You know, you had four, four uni students that were in a bar trying to plan a trip that, you know, cost hundreds of thousands. You know, the pressure, you know, this was completely new concept to us. We hadn't, you know, stepped out of a, a corporate world for 10 years. This is us coming straight from a design degree at university. So this is a huge learning curve for us. But preparation, 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 you know, it's the six Ps, isn't it? And you know, we made us made life so much more um, easier on board because we had a very very good setup um, in the build up to the project. Um, we crossed the I's, dotted the t's. We came up with, you know, we worked as a team. We all had our different areas. We looked at and broke down up broke down the whole project and said. Right, Greg. You're an expert in rowing. Right, Adam. You're an expert in electronics. Ross, your you know navigation. Hugo, your boat setup. Whatever it was, we all had our own tasks, and you know the amount of times yes. we you know mentally went through the entire yes. row was you know we we just went through everything meticulously, and you know it even came down to the whole project. You know coming down to a broken oar lock so this is the little kind of u-shape on the end of the beam off the side of the boat that holds the oar in place and one of those completely snapped off and we hadn't even planned for it and you know the only thing that saved us is that somebody forgot to take out a tool that was meant to be left at the dock and you know had it not have been for a bit of luck you know we wouldn't have got there and there's so many times on that row that you look at everything and you think Christ you know had we not prepared for that and I think the biggest the biggest thing is actually the mental preparation um if someone said to me now you know go and row the you've got to go and row the Atlantic tomorrow I would be like absolutely no way and there were some (laughs) there were some (laughs) there were some pretty low moments um some very low moments but you know, we we trusted our preparation and there was, no, you know, I don't think either of us or any of the team, including Adam and Greg, who we did it with, um, got to the start line and we we're like, you know, we're not ready for this. I mean, we certainly didn't know we weren't ready, but, you know, in our minds, we had done the preparation and therefore we believed we could do it. And I think that mindset, you know, that your preparation helps with your mental readiness. So, yeah, for me, it's it's preparation, you know.
0: And, and then... When you finished that row and you're in Barbados, had, had th- at that point then, had, had you both made your minds up that you were going to dedicate yourself to being adventurers and explorers? No, not, not at all. Not no, no at all.
1: definitely not. <laughs> I think I think the, the biggest thing was um, getting back into reality. Apart from being land sick, so op- obviously the opposite of being seasick. We'd been on the sea for so long that we're land sick. So to get it back into the mentality of normal life, what we just achieved, it'd been an 18 month project for young 22 year olds, 23 year olds, was, was a big, big meal to, to take and consume. But after we kind of digested it, we got to that point where we were trying to think of another idea to do to, to fill the void of the huge ambitious task of running the Atlantic. You know, after, what do you do? You, no more emails there's no more rowing all the logistics are done and you're almost twiddling your fingers so for us it was right we've got this balance of trying to find employment and work and also trying to quench the thirst of adventure and uh, I remember watching this professor called Alan Watts on YouTube I'm not sure whether you've seen it I'm sure some listeners might have seen it if you type into YouTube Alan Watts what do I desire And, and it was a YouTube Um, video of this about three and a half minutes long from a U.S. professor who um, breaks it down beautifully and just says what do you desire take take money out of it what do you want to do and we're exactly at that stage after the road we didn't really know what we wanted to do do you chase money or your dream and he just said look be a poet be a horse rider whatever you're not going to make money from it but if you become a master of it you can then charge your fee and for us, that was, or for me particularly, that was that was a no-brainer. You know, why why go and do something you don't want to go and do for the rest of your life, being unhappy, chasing a dream that you're know never gonna do. Yeah, um, I
2: think it's I think it's also believing in what you're doing, you know, and, and having that that drive. You know, I think here you know, we finished the finished the Atlantic and it was oh, it was absolutely incredible, especially to have the family there. And then you know you're kind of going well, we've done it once That stood do it again you know whatever that was and I, I guess this is slightly our I don't know I want to say Achilles heel or maybe it's a mastery stroke but you know we don't fully appreciate what we're getting into until we're really into it but I think that's the spirit of an entrepreneur you kind of learn on your way um, you know all the skills we've built up over nearly 10 years has it been 10 years 21 2011 crikey it is you know all those skills That we've built up and and learned and developed you know whether it's on a expedition or from a you know an entrepreneurial spirit or you know the business um have has come from learning on the job on the role and so you know it was one of those things that said well we've done one trip how hard can it be and at that stage you know we had no intentions of you know really doing it as a career or thinking it would be a sustainable career but we thought well we want to do it you know let's do it why you know why can't we and you know one thing mum always says to us and it's probably the basis of why we do what we do is she you know as soon as we have a you know i want to say a, a silly suggestion but a wild suggestion or thought you know oh, i want to do this i want to do that i want to build this i want to go there and you know she's always saying dream on as in ah oh, dream on yeah it will never happen and well, that's exactly what we did. We just dreamed on. We dreamed, and we, you know, followed followed through, as it were.
0: So what? So what came next? You rode the Atlantic. Your big, big electric thing.
2: And then in 2014, um, we. I mean, I, I, I can't remember the specifics of it, but it was Shackleton's hundredth anniversary of his uh, endurance expedition, famous endurance expedition, um, in 2014. And this was about 2012, 2013. And we went back to the charity and we said, you know, we want to do another project, because I think at the end of the project, we'd raised circa 150,000 in clear funds for the charity. And we said, you know, can we recreate or go and test Ernest Shackleton's kit and clothing and equipment in Greenland for a Greenland crossing that's a west to east coast? It's about five, 550 miles trekking wise it will take you know anywhere up to a month six weeks and you know we got some more in uh, charity or got the charity on board and we got some funds and so off we went again off we went again no polar experience we went with a guide called george bird who turns out to be now a very good friend and um, we share the same birthday we same share the same career we started in Kangalusak on the west coast and the plan I was sure. to trek via die two radar station and if any of your listeners want a really interesting story and history search the die two or the, the die radar stations of greenland um absolutely fascinating I'm, I'm amazed you know there hasn't been a mainstream documentary about them because they're these massive Well, die two which is where we went via in the middle of the ice cap it's about it's got to be 200 miles up onto the ice cap and it's just this massive, when I say massive, it's, I mean, Rossi, how long did you take to walk around it? Yeah, so I, I was, um, I
1: went inside it and it's a, a fully self-sustained basically house in the middle of the ice cap that sustains about 80 military personnel for an entire year, totally self-sufficient.
2: Um, yeah, just
1: the most extraordinary
2: thing cool. you've ever seen. But what i find fascinating is that it was abandoned within 24 hours in 1988 so the year we were born and the food the bedrooms everything is as it was left it's is absolutely extraordinary um yeah. and um so we went via die two radar station and we we would or well, the plan was to go further east um to the east coast and tasselak but um the, the, through the period um of the two weeks we were on the ice cap i injured my knee through attrition um to be honest it was probably lack of preparation you know physical preparation you know having come from the atlantic but then actually saying that i do think though that um we've both got an issue with our right knees because of steering the boat on the atlantic when you're rowing the, the, the motion of rowing back and forward on your seat, as well as trying to twist your foot at the same time, trying to steer the boat, um was probably not great for the knees. But um yeah, really sadly failed. Um, and,
0: and on this trip, you, you took the old fashioned clothing to compare that to the newer stuff. And, and how did that go? Yes.
1: Yeah, so, so that was that was the premise was to see how hard it was. Also, try and uncover some new, new findings about explorers a hundred years ago and how hard it was to be an explorer back in back in the, those times. Um, so I was wearing um, Ernest Schapens' great kit tweed trousers, leather shoes, wooden skis, bamboo poles, <laughs> fur hat, um, towing his old polk as well. So we had a Nansen sled made from 1888, um, which is beautiful. Still got it on the wall, um, and it, his. Food as well. So we found his dietary um, itinerary from his 1909 expedition in Antarctica. So I took um, fat oats and cured meat with tins with tins of vegetables. So you can obviously imagine when I turned up to Greenland looking (laughs) looking like an old explorer, people were just like, "What are you doing?" And Hugo did the um, modern equivalent. So took carbon fiber skis, poles, etc. Modern polar equipment. And we asked a lot of people. You know what they thought would happen and obviously everyone's just like well it's clearly going to be the modern expensive branded clothing that's going to be better the food is going to be better the skis are going to be better you know modern science and technology is making our dreams and making the world more accessible so why would the old stuff in any capacity be better and we were on the ice cap for two weeks came back um, and obviously we had science involved pre during and after and we can safely safely say that the old kit is just as good if not better in many many aspects for instance the an, a modern polar explorer's pulk is quite short and snout but quite high and they've usually got a cover over the top and carbon fiber strong hull and that kind of pushes into the snow and almost snow plows the, the ice out of the way and makes a little bit more drag whereas I had the Nansen sled which was nine feet long compared to three and a half feet long. And that doesn't have a single screw in it, it's just held together with strings. So it bent as it went over the sastrugi, which is um, ice formations made by wind, and all the little lumps and bumps along the ice. And there were definitely stages where I had to walk behind the pole to slow it down as we were going down little hills. Whereas the boys were just pulling these modern poles
2: aggressively through the ice. I mean, it should, uh, it should also be said that, you know, this is anecdotal experience we're not um by any stretched imagination saying that we are experts in this field but this was just you know our experience of um a pretty wild a wild trip just comparing the old and new and yeah, yeah it was um
0: and do you get on really well when you're on these trips or do you just just with
2: them? <laughs> <laughs> i mean we get on well we get on well enough i mean when i say well enough no we're absolutely um you know house on fire um, when it comes to trips and that's one thing that we've you you find I feel that when you're on these yeah. trips you really kind of switch on and turn on um, yeah. you know I've been watching the Americas Cup recently and you know those guys have had month years to train and it's kind of similar right. to us like when you get to the start point of the project you know you suddenly go into match mode and you suddenly start focusing everything becomes a bit more. Clear. Everything becomes focused. Everything comes sharp. There's nothing that's too much or too little. To you know, you are up for absolutely anything to keep everything going. Um
0: But I've I've seen these things on the TV, and <laughs> and, and people properly fall out with each other. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I mean, you, that's do, that's, and that's have fights and that's that's, that's I mean, the
1: danger. Sorry, that's that's the danger mark with these expeditions is people get pushed to their limits and those limits and boundaries are kind of stepped over. And that's where you hear horror stories um, from various different environments and expeditions. Um, but we met, a, amazingly, we met um, a guy who lives closest, close-ish to our parents on Dartmoor and um, called Humphrey Walters. And he managed, or he managed the 2003 England Rugby World Cup team um, with their logistics and mental and motivation. And uh, he just said to us, "If you do have an argument, whatever you do, apologise, shake hands, and get on with it, and never ever go to bed with an argument unsettled." And we've done that ever since, and it and it worked on the Atlantic. It's worked numerous times on numerous expeditions. Um, it's a very very simple mentality and offering of kindness and. Um, know let's get on with it. So
2: I mean one one thing that Humphrey taught us was just, you know, he makes I think the brilliance of him is that he keeps he makes the most complicated topics sound incredibly simple. And you know, as Ross has just said, it's the most obvious thing to go and, you know, apologize to someone, shake their hand, make up. But you know, when you're in the moment, when you're, you know, wanting to put your fist in his face, it's just, you know, some people find that really, really difficult. And you know, the amount of expeditions that we've we've heard of and you know it just explodes and yeah it's you know we've we're, we're, we're very lucky in that sense that we we um, get on really really well and you know I think because we are identical when it comes to mindset on an expedition we don't have there's no confrontation or anything like that
0: and and then um I know that you've done work on your trips around science, so the biology of twins, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so how, how did that come about?
2: After the Greenland Expedition, or the failures of um, Greenland, um, we weren't deterred, really, by failure. And, you know, failure's a funny one, isn't it? Because it draws so many parallels to business, and everyone's like, well, if you fail once, you know, never again, and, you know, the Brits, I don't know, Mark, you you all know much more than we do and your experience is huge. But, you know, from, from our side, you know, I think failure is seen as a negative. You know, lots of people see it very negatively. I think stateside, they're a bit more open to failure. And if it doesn't, you know, if it fails, it fails. Don't worry, we'll start again. And I think over here, there's, you know, there are some incredible and there's, there's there are loads of entrepreneurs. But I think failure is a funny one to look at you know i i wish failure was just summarized as like a lesson and as soon as people you know your whole life growing up at school was learning lessons and failure is just a lesson in life to learn we went on to plan a trip to climb mount elbrus which is ah, uh, your viewers may or may not know but is europe's highest peak um it's I think 5,642 in the course of mountains geographically it is the highest in Europe I think I think Mont Blanc arguably says it is we went to climb climb that mountain and again you know we went to compare the old versus new but the mountaineering so there's an amazing story of George Mallory who was arguably the first person to summit um, or reach the top of of Everest and in 1924 he set out out with his climbing partner Sandy Irvin to make the ascent and famously went missing Um, and nobody knows whether he got to the top or not. Now I read this book years ago and it is it's by Geoffrey Archer Paths of Glory and it's an absolutely inspiring read because it's George Mallory's I guess two loves which is his wife and home and that freedom that expeditions and the glory that expeditions offer you know that's always captivated me and and so I was like, well, why don't we go and climb Mount Elbrus, five and a half thousand meters, eighteen thousand feet, and compare the clothing? You know, get some replica clothing and kit, and go and you know compare it. And you know, we're like, I
0: hope hope this time, uh, Hugo, you wore the old stuff, and you gave Ross the new kit. (laughs) Well, I did. The funny thing,
1: the funny thing is, Mark, that from pre-Greenland. We all thought, you know, the modern stuff's great, but um, obviously from the experiments and the science and how we felt in the ice cap, we were both wanting to wear the old um, George Mallory clothing. And the interesting point with the clothing is because synthetic materials hadn't been really um, available or indeed commercially available from when um, Ernest Shackleton finished in the 1910s, 1920s all the way up to the 1950s, the clothing hadn't changed. So all we had to do was um, get some hobnails in the boots, get some putties which went around the ankles, and a few different um, garments, and that was it. The, the kit stayed relatively the same. So
2: yeah, it was very, it's very interesting. You know, it's, uh, you know, again, it was one of these things. it's like bite, bite more than you can chew. You know, we wanted to do this expedition. You know it's a cv you know sit down right have you uh climbed a mountain no have you got any of the kit no uh where are you going to source you know what did they wear back in the day i'm not sure where can you get it made i'm not sure no. and all that you know it was just uh, a complete jump into the unknown again but using the skills that we transferred from you know the atlantic greenland you know, you've just got to start getting creative. And for some reason in our heads, it all makes sense. Um, And not many people think it will will happen. But um, yeah, we we, um, managed to get hold of a tailor. And we said, we're looking to (laughs) make a garment uh, top and bottom out of gabardine. Now gabardines are very tightly woven cotton that they used to use for mountaineering purposes. So very wind resistant and also wicks. And this tailor came back to us a few weeks ago and said look i've actually done some research we'd love to help um i've tried to find the pattern for the clothing and the jackets that mallory wore and they're still owned by burberry burberry still have the pattern for the jacket and so he couldn't make it to the exact pattern but essentially made you know an identical jacket with different patterns but." You know, in short, we got we got down to you know Albury about a year later. This was twenty fifteen now. Mm. Um, before we went, um, we got into GSK's Human Performance Lab, which is out in Brentford. Now, this it's, it's just below where their big main office building is. But we went there and we said, you know, we're going to do be doing this um, experiment. You know, would you mind, you know, doing some science on us? And they were like, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So they just shoved us in a freezer at minus 25 with this kit on, um, which was a stark contrast contrast to the you know the balmy 15 degrees we get in south of London. Um, and there we were working, you know, our, our pants off on a treadmill, all um thermometered up internally, which was quite funny. So amazingly, if you just swallow a big pill, which is an internal thermometer rather than you know anything else. So um that was fortunate. Um, and they found that. Yeah, we had about twenty minutes each on a treadmill with wind speed, um, and yeah, the, the the performance of the the old kit was was sensational. It was really really impressive in you know in relation to uh, the new, and it it really wasn't very far behind. It's just you have to know how to use that uh, clothing and equipment. You know, like all these things, you just got to know its limitations, how to how to work and things like that. And yeah, that
1: would,
2: I think an um, early think, indicator that it was going to be some good kit. I think the, the biggest thing we learned was
1: the modern equipment that we were wearing. The scientists pulled myself out. I was wearing the modern. They pulled me out after eight minutes of the experiment because my my skin temperature had got too cold. Whereas Hugo stayed the whole 25 minutes, I think it was in there. And that was yeah. purely that wasn't me wearing the wrong clothing. It was just I hadn't understood how it was meant to be properly worn and didn't understand the limitations so if i'd worn different layers i would have been absolutely fine but i think these days we go into a shop we spend five six hundred pounds on a jacket and go right i can go anywhere in the world and i'm absolutely fine where well, that really yeah isn't, that really isn't the case you need to understand what you have you've got
2: yeah we're even even five, what, five six seven years on we're still refining our kit and our systems and what works you know it's know as we say you can't expect a different result if you keep doing the same thing and that that is key throughout everything we do so whether that's sponsorship approach um approaching businesses for various reasons um you know to approaching uh how we organize a trip how we operate on a trip like you cannot keep doing the same thing and think oh well if we do it again then hopefully things will change you've got to change what you're doing you know and that and that brought us back to you know discovering more knowledge new knowledge
1: by putting ourselves in a different situation, um, highlighting a different story from past explorer and giving something back to the people who are watching and following us. I mean, it's all it's all great going off um, with a purpose, which is obviously very important to us, but if we can give back to somebody um, a little something that they didn't know before. You know, the scientists, I know they're still talking about it today, going that was just the most balmy thing um, eccentric, so to speak, experiment, you know, having somebody in a hundred year old clothing and seeing the actual physical performance compared to the modern equivalent. You know, it's, um, and it you, does, it does change people's perceptions.
0: And you've taken that science theme forward, haven't you? Yes. Yeah.
2: So we, we, well, just as a quick, quick recap of this, um, this client so we went, went up the mountain and um, every day we do, they were monitoring our cortisol levels, which is to do with stress. So the, you know, their human performance lab was trying to work out, you know, in professional athletes, whether it's Olympians, rugby players, footballers, hockey players, whatever, the the more physical exertion they exert through a game and the longer a game goes on, does their is their cognition affected? Is their decision making affected by how tired they are? And so every day, you know, we we did a proper we're probably you know, <laughs> this is clutching at straws, but probably the first people to climb uh, Mount Elbrus with iPads. You know, we we were doing some cognition tests every four hours on the way up. So simple brain games that were just testing how quick our reactions were, how quick our thinking was. And we would do this, uh, you know, all the way up the mountain and down the other side. And, you know, there was, albeit a reasonably loose, but a very strong um, correlation between the rea- our reaction times and our thinking time slowing down the higher up yeah. we went which you know indicated that you know the more physical exertion yeah. the tired our bodies were feeling and probably you know due to altitude as well decision yeah. making was yeah. definitely yeah. affected. We enjoy
1: uncovering new science and questioning, questioning life so to speak.
0: So, so after four years you've, you've rode an ocean, walked on a, an ice sheet and you've climbed a mountain so what happens then? No. So we were, um, we've
1: lived through an, an epic decade. I think anyone can say that from when iPhones first came out the, in 2010-ish, kind of you know to a level, and now look where we are now with phones um, and social media has exploded. Um, and obviously, we we definitely have gone past a point at which you can ask, just for instance, a million pounds from Expedition. That's going to last two years businesses, brands, it's far, far quicker than that. People want instant results. They want gratification quickly. So that that was a thing of the past. And what we tried to look at was, okay, if we're going to make this um, our uh, business and our job, how can we do it the most effective way? So we looked at what we'd done. We'd done the Atlantic, we'd done obviously the historic expeditions on the Green and Ice cap and on Mount Elbrus. And we thought, well, right, we need long-term Um, a long-term expedition series that we can go to lots of different environments um, and discover something new, give back to people and just have um, a, a set of projects that brands can really get their teeth into year after year. So we looked on the internet, we looked at maps, we looked at old times, atlases, and we found um, a location called the pole of inaccessibility down in Antarctica. So it's the furthest away from the ocean you can get anywhere on the continent before then heading back. Um, and we realized the one in Antarctica had been um, based there since the 1950s, I think a Russian expedition went there. Um, and then it was visited again in the late nineties and there's been one or two since, but that was it. And so we thought, right, there must be more poles of inaccessibility um, and then we found a, a Spanish um, professor who'd done a huge calculation as maps have become more and more um, accurate due to GPS and satellite tracking. And he'd done a whole map of nine or so poles of inaccessibility. A few, who, uh, a few poles that had been reached and a lot that hadn't. So we thought that's a fantastic uh, global series that we can go on that will entice lots of different brands. We can do content pre, during and after. And use technology as we're going around to, you know, to activate marketing um, for brands. So we we thought, right, let's do it. So we try to do we've tried to do one poll every year, um, and we've now done four, and we've got hopefully our fifth this year. But obviously, we're in a very you're
0: different. You're going to have to help me with this now. I, when I did my geography A level, I, I was told there are two poles. There's a North Pole and a South Pole so how do you get nine
2: poles well you're actually missing the third pole because apparently to some people um mount everest is the third pole Um, and i guess probably that's that's probably um in relation to the explorers grand slam and to adventures but yes um how do we get other poles well yes scientifically, they are they are actually poles of inaccessibility so that is defined by being the most inland point on every continent and you get the oceanic poles now technically there's one of each so you've got the true pole of an accessibility which is in Eurasia so I think it's on I'm going to say Kajikistan border with China somewhere like that so right up in the remote areas and there's point Nemo which is aptly named which is the um, oceanic pole so that is the point in the ocean that is the furthest from any land mass apparently you're closer to the international space station you are to anyone on earth so those are the two points and then we thought well you know two projects is fine but you know we want to offer brands a longer strategy we want to offer them you know long format storytelling that they can you know get their teeth into wrap the brand around for as many trips as we can and this is really you know dragging out dragging out the trips but um,
0: so there are nine poles in total and how many have you collected so far
2: we've got four so we uh, flew paramotors across australia and uh, which is our first pole and then we cycled um across uh, south america to get to the brazil or south american pole which is in brazil and then we did north america yeah. so cycled across the continent there and then rode electric motorbikes from london to the iberian peninsula and that and was has anybody
0: collected all nine
2: no i yeah. mean as far as we know no one there's i think there's one irish man who's been to several of them but he's driven um we be- or oh, i strongly believe that we're the f- we're the first people to document the south american pole of inaccessibility
0: so
2: um but no no one's ever been to all
0: nine extraordinary. extraordinary so you've got your your next five trips planned out then yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah that
1: amazing. Amazing. <laughs> amazing that we um we have and we we've we've had it planned for a few years which is quite nice um but this is where we we've, we've learned so much you know i think if you'd said to somebody in our position when we were age 22 uh planning the atlantic you know, you've got to start you know, making a huge business plan for all these trips, not just the Atlantic. You'd be like, nah, like, that's just not in my remit. I'm not capable of doing that. I'm not trained in it. But the great thing is you can learn as you go. And we've got enough time. You ebb and flow. You meet kind people who help you out. And, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. The ambition that you learn from a successful large trip like the Atlantic just makes all these other poles of inaccessibility so
2: much more accessible to try and achieve so and um, and that's also the the beauty of the business we're in which is partnerships which is you know growing together with the brands that support us it's you know very much inclusive it's not you know it's it's just a, a wonderful feeling that we're all in you know we become partners and we all have the same goal and we all work towards that goal um so we you know have amazing relationships with some amazing brands
0: and you meet some amazing people along the way now to to wind up there are a few things i want to ask you so i want to know and i'm sure all the listeners want to know are you happy doing what you're doing and i know you've taken the happy at work test so how did you score well actually
2: mark i'm going to ask you how do you think we scored
0: well i i would have thought that you're very happy i would have thought that you're very frustrated when you're not on a mission or an expedition um and so it depends where you are in the timing now because of lockdown i suspect you've actually been a bit frustrated that you can't get out and do your stuff. Um, but overall, I would say the two of you feel as though you've got a great purpose to your life and you're doing interesting things. So I think you'll have scored highly.
1: Yeah, well, I got 82. Very I, got, I got 77. But then I didn't really know how to, to measure the scale. So I just... Oh, here
2: we go.
0: <laughs> so you measure the scale by looking at the matrices at the end, and you can see where you compare to uh, other people. Yeah, and I'm... I suspect that both of you are well above the average, and I suspect you're very high in terms of your sense of purpose. Yeah, and
2: Mark, I, f- I found it a brilliant tool to just have a screenshot of where we are as a, as a, as a guest of a business. Um and a team here you know it's something that i guess our lives have become work and our work have become lives and there's sometimes very difficult to differentiate but having a you know having that third point of view in and on the business through through that questionnaire was really valuable to us i think we'll we'll look at that for a while and think about areas that we could improve yeah um and areas that we can change and see how it feels but it was a great great kind of insight into i guess you know how happy we are at the workplace
1: yeah we've we've traditionally
2: traditionally we've done
1: um simple swot analysis of businesses but we've never really done a personal analysis of ourselves um really interesting it's really interesting and thoroughly um yeah thoroughly recommend it
0: final question if you were to uh recommend somebody to take the uh the happy at work test to find out how happy they really are at work and how they might improve who who would you choose
2: i would lo- i'd love to see teachers take this actually you know there's a lot of teachers out there that will you know i think parents especially have realized the value of teachers and i think there is a huge interest in more people teaching but you know it's it's a reward isn't it you know it's um yeah, I guess you could have some good good, good um, students, bad students, but I, I would love to see how, you know, you know, their transition from online to eventually, we hope back back to the classroom and how their mood and how their happiness might change with that. That would be, I think for me would be really interesting. And I, Ross, I, is
0: there an individual you'd pick?
2: There's, there's no individual that
1: I'd, um, I'd like to corner at. Um, but I would love to see a, um, a spread of different um, work and jobs and just to see who are the happiest. There's obviously lots of surveys out there, I'm sure, that have, oh, the happiest job is, you know, this person or this particular type of job. But I'd love to see um, your questionnaire and happiness put across a whole spectrum of from CEOs down to people um, who collect rubbish to postman to um, cooks to anything and just try and get a real sense of what it means to be in these particular jobs because I can, I can already imagine that there's probably going to be a lot more happier people probably lower down than there are higher up potentially. Um, that that's, would,
0: that... cert- that's certainly true in all the research we do with younger people interestingly uh, under 30s people in non-management are actually happier than people in management under the age of 30, which is quite extraordinary. Only age group where that happens. And I think it says something about uh, uh, the younger generation and how they view the world. And and you're both amazing exponents of that, the things that you've done and you've been driven by your dreams and you've been driven by the need to do um, extraordinary things um, to help others. Um, and in that in that sense, you you've both been amazing to talk to, and uh, are role models for people listening to to this interview. Um, lots of people say follow your dreams, but of course very few people actually do. But uh, you've done that, and I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. And I wish you every success into the future. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Mark. Thanks
0: for having us. thank you for listening for more on this podcast head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work